Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, this is Ellie. This week on Pop Parenting, Avram and I watched and are now discussing the Kevin Costner movie Field of Dreams. We're using it to explore ideas around making amends after someone has passed away, parenting in 2021, the beauty of a flexible, supportive marriage, and how to make progress in a dysfunctional family system. Next week, we're going to look at 16 Candles, but for today, let's look at Field of Dreams. Here we go. Perfect. How are you? Everything's good. Yeah, I was. Um, uh, so we're up, we're up live. So welcome back, everyone, to Pop Parenting. Um, everything's good. I I um, I have not watched Field of Dreams. I think since it was in the theater, and um, I was like, I didn't remember how mystical it was. For some reason, I just remembered it like this kind of like meh, you know, like white guy boring baseball movie but it's actually like it's actually very surprised how beautiful it was like there was such so many interesting ideas in there um and it's definitely the only kevin costner movie i like <laughs> it's what's like another before, what's that I'm, i mean he's I, I know him from other uh films what's a big film what's another big kevin costner um, like he did tin cup he did um trying to think of some of his other films he's that like i think he played every sport there is in some movie at some point yeah Um, that's what it sounds like and he did a um i think he did one science fiction film that was like about the end of the world and it flooding which was like a totally horrible flop um ellie who played the uh who played the cop in that amish movie was it costner no, that Harrison, was Harrison. Ford. Harrison Ford. That was Harrison Ford. Yeah. I always get those two confused, Kevin Costner yeah. and Harrison Ford. Well, Kevin Costner in this movie reminds me almost of Tom Cruise before he became crazy. You know, like he's got this very like youthful, innocent, not jaded and stiff from Hollywood kind of look in this movie. So it was very like easy to watch him. I find as a lot of these celebrities get older, it's harder and harder to watch them because they just seem so almost like a caricature of themselves. Whereas he was so natural. I've got a great Kevin Costner role. I have got a great Kevin Costner movie. Okay, go. The, Untou- the Untouchables. Yes. Okay. That, that is a good movie. film. That is a fantastic film. And by the way, you know what's funny? <clears throat> I heard a, uh, there's a, um, uh, a podcast or a YouTube video with a, uh, a former mob guy, Michael Franzetti. Franzazi or something. Uh-huh. He's 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 a public speaker now. He does a motiva- motivational speaking, but he was in a, in a big. Um, uh, he was a made guy in a a mob family in New York back in the seventies and eighties. Right. And I think he consulted on Goodfellas and Casino and anyways. <clears throat> so he was saying um. Uh, he was talking about um different scenes in this uh, podcast where he he comments on mob films so he's a mob guy commenting on how realistic it is That's so they show they show a scene with robert de niro um from uh from whatchamacallum 
uh, what's the film again? Uh, the Untouchables. Um, okay. who, not the Godfather. No, not the. Well, they no, they did the Godfather. They, okay, but they it. showed all the different. And so, um, Princess, he, he laughs and he goes, "You know, De Niro started out doing a lot of these mob guys in the in the seventies and eighties, and he's like in twenty twenty, he's like he's kind of morphed into one. Have like, you ever seen De Niro go totally uh, go, go on his political rants? He's yeah, become, yeah. he's become, <laughs> you know." Like the mob guys he plays in 100%. movies. I thought that and was then a... he, you know, you just see him showing up with a bat through rally, you know, like he's ready. It's it, no, it's true. He's sort of morphed into the character that he played on screen. Uh, anyways, I thought Kevin yeah. Costner was amazing in that film. Yeah, he was. It's true. That was a great film. And he still had that was still one of his earlier films, too, right? Like in this film, I was blown away by how natural he was. He really had this sort of like they both did, both him and his, and the woman that played his wife in this film. They were both so beautifully just like, what is this? What? And they really were able to convey that. It felt like I was watching a play sometimes, like just that sort of naturalness that you don't often see on screen anymore. I was so, I, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. Now for me, I never saw the film uh, in theater. Um, I always heard about the film. People reference the film. Uh, quite a bit. Um, I'm not a big baseball guy, so I found it was hard for me to get into the milieu of baseball. Um, right. I have a former bass player of mine, Warren Molansky, if you're listening. He's, <laughs> he's not listening. But um, he, I don't know what has happened to him, Ellie. He wasn't a sports guy, but mm -hmm. he's a single guy. He's uh, sort of like late 40s, maybe early 50s. He somehow got a, the baseball bu bug to bring the Expos back to Montreal. And he has now, he dedicates his time. It's really weird. It's like he used to do this with fish. He would follow fish, the band fish around. He does this with baseball. He will take off from his company. He's created a company in Montreal that's doing quite well. He will take off for months at a time, Ellie, and travel to different baseball stadiums and tr wow. try hot dogs and then write reviews about hot dogs. Baseball culture okay. is a really... You know, like there's these subcultures out there, you know, there's, there's all these subcultures, but yeah. some are weird, but they're de facto weird. So like if you have a, a weird fetish about centipedes, that's yeah. just weird. Right. But it's baseball. Americana. It's really. There's a, a sort of a, a weirdness unto yeah. itself, I find, about people who are obsessive about baseball. Let's dive in. Okay. And help elevate our parenting skills and usher in 2021 as more mature and uh, whatever. Okay, in, let's do it. <laughs> the, the one leg, the one leg uh, summary. The on one leg. So the on one leg is this film starts out as if it's very normal where Kevin Costner and his lovely wife, um, actually the film opens with Kevin Costner telling the history of his father and then his relationship with his father, whom uh, when Kevin, like his father was a baseball player and then he became, I guess, a businessman, if I'm remembering correctly, and wanted then of course his son to live out the dream of being a baseball player um, that he was never able to do. And his son goes to university and gets involved in the sixties, um, you know, sort of gets in that, you know, fight the man sort of headspace gets in an argument with his father at age 17 and basically doesn't speak to him again. They basically don't speak for the rest of their lives. And he says the next time I saw him was at his funeral. 
Um, and then it flashes forward to him now. He says he's now living on a farm in Iowa with his wife and his daughter and trying to make a living running a corn farm. Um, he decided he never wanted to, you know, baseball became a chore, he said, and, and uh, he wanted to do something else with his life. And he actually has a very beautiful relationship with his wife. And so what happens in living on this farm is he's out in the cornfields one day and he hears a voice. And the voice says, if you build it, they will come. And he thinks he's going crazy, but he has this feeling and somehow gets his wife on board. And he, you know, keeps hearing this voice and figures out that what the voice wants him to do is plow away a portion of his income, his cornfield, and build a baseball diamond. Um, and, uh, and once he does, he builds the baseball diamond and sure enough, shoeless Joe Jackson walks out of the corn and eventually other baseball players start walking out of the corn. And then he hears another voice and he goes and collects, uh, one of their favorite authors in the sixties, uh, by the name of Thomas Mann, who sort of reminds us of, um, uh, what's the guy that wrote slaughterhouse five. I can't remember now. I know who you're talking. Yeah, yeah. I know, yeah, Kurt Vonnegut. He has this kind of like 60s Kurt Vonnegut kind of vibe, and but he's played by James Earl Jones and he gets him wrapped up in this whole thing because then they both hear a voice and all these sort of mystical, magical things start happening when they get back to the farm. And by the way, they themselves can only see the baseball players. No one else can. Like her brother's trying to buy the farm from them because it's failing and her brother can't see them and he thinks they're crazy. But in the end spoiler alert, uh, in the end, they have this whole experience where, you know, there's an entire team of, of old dead baseball guys playing baseball on this field on a regular basis. And it comes down to it. They have to sell the farm and, uh, suddenly, you know, something happens where his daughter falls. And then suddenly his brother can see the baseball players. And she says, they'll, you know, if you keep it open, they'll come and the sort of the movie ends. Oh, and then the last piece is when he, the last day uh, before everything sort of like blows onto a new level, he looks onto the field and he sees his father playing baseball on the field. And so sort of the, the coming together of the film is that Kevin Costner is now playing baseball, playing catch with his father as a young baseball player on the field. And then from there on, you see sort of a line of cars all coming where they're going to pay like 20 bucks each to come and watch all these old baseball players play baseball. And that's how they're going to save the farm. The end. <laughs> I think I got everything in there. <laughs> okay. I don't know how to explain a movie like that. It was so wild. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, one of the things that um, I found uh, interesting uh having never seen the film, you know, I found the reactions to his hearing the voices and seeing the images and other people cannot, um, as a viewer, maybe, you know, as, as a viewer and maybe as a therapist, uh, I very much empathize with the people who thought he was crazy because the fact is that if I can see things and I can hear things and you can't, the literal definition of psychosis is, is that thing. Um, and because it was so literal, because it's film and you have to make things literal, um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, as opposed to, you know, Ellie, you say to me, I have a dream, I'm going to build a restaurant one day. And okay, I get that, you know. But if you say to me, I'm speaking to Mike right now in front of you, and I can't see Mike, I'm thinking you're crazy. <laughs> like, that's my first thought. Right. And so as right. a viewer, it was hard for me. It, it, I, I empathized with the reaction of the people who were watching this going, uh, this is nuts. And I, so I don't know if the filmmaker intended to, to start off that way and then make the big reveal where other people can see, but that was my initial reaction watching funny uh, the I beginning parts a, of Kevin Costner's. Um, I had such a multi-layered experience with that because I very much related to it allegorically, like what it's like when you really feel a reality that no one else is able to get. And it's literally as if you can hear it and see it. Hmm. And that you just, and it's only the people who can suddenly be in the right headspace, then they see it too. They get it. It's like, um, it's, it's the, what I felt was, you know, the tremendous trust and faith in the illogical voices that sometimes point us in a totally different direction and how powerful that can be, you know, to actually take a leap and listen to that voice. Um, I think it's it's such a powerful idea because we so often, yeah, we just go with whatever culture or society tells us is acceptable, but so rarely we'll listen to something that's so out of the blue and you're like, how is this even possible that I could do that? What? Hmm. And then, you know, the extraordinary stories that you hear of people who did it and changed and, and did something extraordinary because they listened to something that was so out of the box. And, the, and what I thought was so beautiful was that his wife, you know, she was practical and yet was on board, you know, and not only that, eventually had a dream herself, you know, like where they have that same dream. And, and she realizes then she's like, okay, I'm on board. What do we do? Like, I see it. I got it. This is totally weird, but I get it. And, and it, it was just such a beautiful, ex- like expression of that idea that sometimes our destiny is not logical at all. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I thought it was, really I, th- I think I caught up to that as the film progressed, um, you know, that um, idea that, when you have a dream or a vision that is is burning, you are going to get pushed back by people to say, give it up, stop. It's too dangerous. It's too scary. It doesn't make sense. This is not going to work out. Um, and the dream and the film clearly stands as a testament to um, the idea that uh, sometimes contrary to what is logical, one has to pursue the thing that your heart is yearning for. And I think that that is a beautiful part of the film. Mm. In the beginning, my reaction was a friend came up to me and said, I was in a field just now, and I heard a voice and it said to me to plow my field. My first reaction would be, that's nice. (laughs) That's great. To me, it would depend who the friend is. Slowly walk away. It would depend. Look, if somebody came up to me and I know they're fully rational and they had some mystical experience, I'd be on board. I, I know there's stuff like that in the world. So I'm, I'm cool with that. Like that stuff doesn't bother me so much. I think it was more the, um, you know, I, I think it's allegory, but look, I kind of live in a world of, you know, lots of things happen. You know, there are more, what is that Hamlet quote? There are more things dreamt of in this world than, you know, than you or I could ever see. 
So, yeah. You know, uh, it's I, I just heard a um, a, a beautiful uh, uh, interview with G. E. Smith, uh, the former guitar player for Hall and Oates. Um, long injury. He he also became the band leader for Saturday Night Live for a while. He was married to um, oh Gilda Ratner. Uh, for a while. Super interesting guy. Anyways, the interview is like two and a half hours long, but right near the end, I'm glad I waited. The guy, they were talking about um, mystical experiences, which I don't understand how they even got there. The guitarist from Hall & Oates. And so he was very much um, talking about things that you were speaking about right now, where he said, I've never said this openly and I've never said, but you know, he will, he sees and beyond music even he was, and it, it was interesting where the conversation went and how as a listener, it was almost unnerving. And there's something unnerving, I find, mm-hmm. um, about people speaking about that with which I cannot see, hear, taste, smell. And I think that just myself and as being a product of a very rational, in many ways, a very rational world. Right. Um, and anyways, that's just, I think that's, a, that's why I was pushing you on uh, before we had this podcast on Facebook. I, th- I would love to find a film with religious spiritual themes from the 80s and 90s that we mm. can bring into pop parenting. I just I couldn't think of any, but we need to think about that. So if anyone's listening and they have a good film that touches on themes of spirituality and religion or anything like that from the yeah. 80s and 90s, please um, let us know. Ellie, I want to introduce an idea here. Okay. Um, that uh, that I think is very important and we haven't had in any of the films really, Rain Man sort of touched on this. So the first thing, by the way, that I thought was interesting, we have another film right on the heels of a previous film where a mother dies very young and the, yeah. father, ha- uh, the father is now in charge of um, the family. I thought that was interesting too, by very, the way. It's all very Disney, you know, it's like making, taking those Disney ideas mm-hmm. and putting them into like real life films in that time, it's kind of interesting. Because all the Disney well, the, films, it's the mom that dies and the and the father that's left. It's which is first of all, it's interesting because um, statistics don't bear that out. If any, you know, I mean, if not to get too morose on this on this you know right. podcast here, but uh, you know, the fact is that women live longer than men. So the idea that all these you know all these women are dying before they're you know, it's just it's very interesting. Um, there's another film like that. Uh, oh my God, it's such a beautiful film with John Turturro and Andy McDowell. Is that the actress? Yeah. Andy McDowell. Yeah. She's she's dying of cancer very young and she leaves her uh, and John Turturro is the husband. Oh, Ellie is beautiful. It's with Kramer from a yeah, Seinfeld. Have you seen I this film? This. No, but I remember hearing about it. Oh, yeah. Ellie and it. This could be the film because it touches it touches on the crazy uncle who sees things and it's about spirituality and the kid oh, the cool. kid really relates to the uncle because he has such a fan and his father's a scientist who, oh Ellie I think we found our film okay good we got to find out what it's called now <laughs> it's a tearjerker it's a tearjerker though I'm, I'm more anyways um so so yeah this it's interesting I mean I was trying to think of do can we think of a film where the filmmaker was trying to convey something similar, you know, a certain amount of stress on one parent due to the death of another, where it was the husband who died and left the mother. Cause I, I'm trying to think of one. I can't think of one. For sure. Because, you know, there were uh, in that time also, there were many films about single parenthood. Although interestingly, I think more in the eighties, single parenthood for women the tragedy for women was being divorced, whereas the tragedy for men is being a widow, which is kind of interesting. Oh, um, so maybe that's the motif that, so if the filmmaker wants to tell a tale of, of tragic proportions, 
a mother dying leaving the father with the kids just goes yeah it rips the oh, heartstrings and, i mean we spoke yeah. about this like worst case scenario what could disney come up with or the brothers grim is that the mother dies it is the you know one of those essential fractures for a child that they're that they don't have their mother um it's it's biblical right you know like this this idea that the mother wouldn't be there is is really um, yeah, I think it's worst case scenario for most people. Well, th that's how this film starts, just like Rain Man and just like Rain Man, you have a cutoff between a father and a son again, right. you know, um, and right in the same time period, you know, mid 80s, late 80s. Um, so uh, uh, but something that this film did and fleshed it a little bit uh, with more detail than uh, Rain Man is this idea, Ellie, that um, is an important part of my work, uh, this idea of how we leave home. When, I, when I'm working with a client, um, at some point, I want to find out how they left home. Mm. So we're talking about right. the ages of 17, 18, 19, right around there. Yeah, and most parents will say, hopefully. Well, these days, especially. <laughs> um, and so uh, in the film, uh, Kevin Costner's character, what, what's his, uh, Ray? Uh, Ray. Ray, Ray leaves home the way a lot of, I, I have seen a lot of young adults leave home with a huff and a puff and they, and they want to cut off their parents. Now, what's interesting is I hear parents have a, uh, their own version of this. This is parents who have, you know, they're having a rocky relationship with their teens and they've been told somewhere, they read a book somewhere that my job is to get you to 18 and my job as a parent is done. Right. I'm sure you've heard that sort of idea yep. before. Right. Yeah, for um, sure. Although uh, I'll tell you, most financial planners now will say to you, you know, you should plan to that your kids will be with you until they're at least their mid 20s. Like, don't plan on selling your home and getting a smaller place once your kids are in college. Like most planners now tell you, like, you should figure they're going to be with you for a while longer, which is super interesting. Well, it's interesting. I think it also belies. Um, uh, what we have talked about before about uh, societal anxiety or regressive uh, a society and regression right. where we're asking parents to parent uh, teenagers into their young adulthood, ex essentially extending adolescence. I, I know colleagues of mine who want to extend the definition of adolescence to mid-20s, right. not because they think that's good, but because de facto on the ground, it, it, people 25, 26 are for lack of a better term, that emotionally immature. Um, yeah, which is wild when you think that people used to start ruling kingdoms at 14. You know, right, and, and, and <laughs> or, or you know, when our grandparents tell us, you know, well, I, you know, I had my kids when I was 19, 20. Right. And, you know, when young couples in my office in their 20s and 30s, they hear that and they, you know, they, they were still saving up for their, you know, PlayStation 5. Right. Uh, you know, so it just, it, things, things clearly have um, changed. I would argue they have changed um, in a bit of more of a regressive way, but um, we, that's a topic for uh, another um, show. Anyways, so we, we leave, what I wanted to introduce here is this idea that, you know, um, our lives, when we leave home, our lives to a certain degree are, and the choices we make in, in our spouses that we pick in the jobs that we choose and a lot of the drama we find ourselves that we get into pretty much um, uh, could be foreseen how we leave home. And I think this film does a good job of, of when Ray gives that family of origin background about how his life 
was impacted in the jobs that he chose, um, in the way he was searching for a father figure. I mean, the whole motif of, I want to bring back Shoeless, what is it, Shoeless Joe? Yeah, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Uh, my, my father's favorite player. You know, Ellie, I know, I know people, I have worked with clients, where they are still fighting with their dead parents. I mean, they are, they are still trying to work on a knot. They are still yeah. trying to work on something with a parent who died and the parent died 10 years ago. And they're still, I know people, I've worked with people where um, they haven't spoken to their, their dad, a guy, let's say, who hasn't spoken to his dad in 10 years. He's still trying to get the corner office, the law firm to prove to his father that he, he hasn't spoken to his dad in 10 years. His dad will never know if he gets the corner office or not. But there right. is something unfinished in the family that he's working at and working at and working at. Yeah. And so I think this idea um, that this film introduces about, you know, again, we have a, this show is called Pop Parenting. So from a parenting perspective, to think very, very carefully how we, how we uh, um, work those critical years when our kids are 14, 15, 16, and what kind of transitions and rituals do we have in place so that the transition is one of elasticity, of connection, of freedom, so that the child can come in and out of their, the lives of their family of origin without either having to run away, as Ray did, or the opposite. And this is the other thing, and then let's open this up. The opposite, of course, of running away from your family is being too emotionally fused, too emotionally connected. So this is a situation where I'll have young couples in my office and <clears throat> let's say it's the guy, the guy will say to me, we cannot make a decision until she speaks to her mother. Right. We can't, we, we buy a house, she has to be there. Or it's a financial thing where one of the two, the young couple, they're so financially connected to their family that, yep. that the family never, they're never able to, to become their own independent self, their own independent um, self as an adult. Yeah. And it also it's has flip to, sides it, of the same thing. Right. And it seems to me that type of experience is also around, um, it's around agency, right? Like the less agency, the less individuated you become, the less emotional, emotionally mature you come. So, which is interesting because people often think of say people with wealth as having tremendous agency, but I, I see more and more people of tremendous wealth whose children are um, deeply dependent on their parents' wealth and don't have a sense of agency because their entire world is funded by that wealth um, and never really mature emotionally because um, it's like you said, they're, they're tied in, but never really experience themselves as their own person, you know? So I think, I think it's interesting. Yeah. You, you also hear this. Um, you hear this a lot. Uh, I've heard this when I, when I work with, um, uh, families of mine who come from a Hasidic background where one of the relatives, one of their grandparents was a great Rav in the community and everybody hovered around. And when that grandparent dies, um, a lot of uh, um, the kids who have their name, that grandparent's name, who get that name, there is this implicit idea that you will live up to, to a certain degree. And so you're trapped within, you can be trapped within the wealth, you could be trapped right. within a projection. So it, this idea of how we leave home, how much of a self do we have when we leave home and how much are we still connected? In Ray's case, you know, the line that Ray uses, I, I quoted it here, um, 
this is his quote. When it came time to go to college, I picked the furthest one from home I could find. This, of course, drove him, his father, drove my father right up the wall, which I suppose mm -hmm. was the point. How many people get a tattoo at the age of 17 or 18 or pick a college or to do one of two things, either to appease your parent so you go to law school to as a as a almost a sacrifice, almost as a this is for you more than right. for me or the opposite or the opposite. You know, you grow up in Montreal and you move to Tofino, BC. So you never have to, you have to come home only once a year to see your family. And so uh, this idea about Ray um, picking a college, cutting off from his father, and then spending, as Young says about the shadow, the rest of your life unpacking this shadow. Ray spends the rest of his life in yeah. many ways yeah. paying the price of trying to reconnect with a father who died at this point, right? Um, and anyways, I, I think I want to pause there. I have a couple of other thoughts, but I just thought that was a, such a, a powerful uh, a theme that we haven't really touched on in other films about this idea of leaving home. I'm happy we're talking about it too, because it touches on a theme that kept coming up in my classes all week um, related to the Parsha and related to, um, you know, we're right now in the Parsha where Joseph um, last week forgives his brothers. And how many people feel so uncomfortable with Joseph forgiving his brothers for throwing him in the pit? You know, like they meet up again and Joseph says to them, I'm good. Like, we're, I'm fine with you guys. This was all clearly from Hashem. I needed to get here so that I could save your lives. Like, that's basically how he looks at it. But so many people are like, but how could he forgive them? They were, you know, that's just letting them off the hook. And I think so many people confuse forgiveness and resolve with then the other person having no personal responsibility for their actions, as if I could dictate what this person's self-growth is. And I think that's where we get really confused. It's like, you think if I just hold on to this and like be angry and never let it go, somehow, I still have the power in this situation. And I, and I think it's interesting because it sounds to me often like cut off is a lot about <clears throat> not understanding that forgiveness is for you and it has nothing to do. And, and that was one of the questions that came up, which is the how, well, then how do you forgive someone who's dead? And it's like, because forgiveness has nothing to do with the other person. Yeah. It has I mean, to do with yourself. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, it, you know, in the line of work that I do, um, forgiveness is a part of what I do, but it's not like a main. I mean, when you think of if you read Bowen in the original, what I do, the kind of therapy I do, um, I, I, you know, he, I don't even think I, I'll, I'll have to do a, a search in Kindle on his main book. I don't even think he talks about forgiveness uh, very much, um, not because I don't. I think that he didn't think that that was an important part of. Um, a, a process of a reconciliation with someone who you're cut off from. Um, but I, I think that he put his focus elsewhere. And so right. I get that question a lot, but in a different way, Ellie. So what people will say to me is, I hear what you're saying about resentment, meaning that I, I will introduce research to people that, that suggests that the more you cut off from people in your life, in Ray's case, the more you are likely susceptible to physical illness, emotional illness, problems in all of your relationships. There, there's a lot of consequences to cut off that is uh, above and beyond the psychobabble, touchy-feely stuff. There's right, real- Right, which is the same as all the, for, all the research around forgiveness. If you walk around not forgiving people, you will more than likely have health issues. You will have psychological issues. Like that forgiveness eats 
right? If you, and, and I think that's where cutoff and forgiveness somehow they speak to each other in a similar language that if you don't forgive, you're going to stay cut off. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so with clients like you're the people, the people that um, you're, you know, your, your listeners who ask you this question about what do I do if my mother died and we never, we weren't on speaking terms. Right. Where I go with that in my practices um, <clears throat> uh, because there's, I mean, I guess you could even at a, a um, in a esoteric sense, one could forgive in terms of a spiritual sense through prayer. But where I go with this is research. So what, what happens when people come to my office and they say, I, I didn't speak to my mother for 20 years and then she died. And now I'm left with the memory of a cutoff with my mother. What the hell do I do with that? Right. So what, what I have noticed is when people cut off from someone, you have to create a caricature of that person. You can't cut off from someone if you understand the full Megillah, the full story of someone. So for example, Ellie, if I need to stop talking to you, I need to create you as an evil person because there is no way to justify all the energy it requires for me to cut off my brother from my life. If if I need to stop- The the actual villain in the story. You have to make them into a villain. Otherwise, you have to take ownership of your part in it. You see, if I have to tell my brother, I can't speak to you anymore because you are X, I have to create X. I have to turn him into the villain that I I think is worthy of cutting him out of my life. So when people are in my office and they say, you know, I stopped speaking to my sister for 20 years and then she died. And what am I supposed to do with that? What I encourage them to do, if they can hear it, by the way, Ellie, just to be honest with you, my success doing this, and I think this is true for all my colleagues who do this, is very low, meaning that it's so painful to reconsider one's position after cutting someone out of your life, that very few people could do it. But those who can, the work looks something like this. I will say to someone, it's true, you can't reach out to your mother who died five years ago. Can you speak to her sister and get a better understanding of who your mother was and flesh your mother out into the real, complex, wonderful, maddening person that was your mother? Can you do that? Call cousins and get all the facts of the situation my clients who are able to engage in that process of researching their dead parent, they come to a rapprochement within their heart. But isn't that they forgiveness? come to a place where even if they were abused, even well, I think forgiveness comes. This is this is where I I think it's important point here. I think sometimes Ellie, what happens is people use "I'm sorry" and forgiveness, and they they try to bum rush the process of doing the hard work right? The hard work of understanding who is this person beyond what they did to me. You see, in a way, one way to get rid of pain with my brother I've been spoken to is, can we just say I'm sorry? Can we just get over this? And you know where they find themselves three months later? In another major fight. So I'll tell you something interesting because in the Joseph story, what does he do before he gets to that place? He tests them. He, He sets up, like he doesn't tell them who he is and he gives them all these tests to try to see like, who are they? Are, is, are, are they really the people that I thought they were that would throw their brother into a pit and try to murder him? Uh, what are they going to do with each other? How are they with the younger brother? What are they like with their father? He actually sets up all these tests to try to understand who they are. And when he finally gets to the end of it, he goes into another room and he weeps. And then he comes out and reveals himself and says, I'm, I, actually the word in, in Hebrew is not forgive. It's, it's I'm no longer carrying you. And so I think that's the idea. Like it, it really goes through this process that you're describing of, of 
who, what's really happening now on the ground in terms of who this person is and now how do I relate to them in terms of what's best, you know, what's the most healthy relationship that can happen here? Yeah, I mean, that, that I, I think that idea, that grueling process of um, going through the valley or the forest where you don't know what, what's on the other side, yeah. forgiveness could be on the other side. There's no guarantee, by the way, right. where you're going to be. But the work, the work is still the work. And I think that the only thing that I get cautious about is a lot of clients will come to my office and go, but she hasn't said sorry. Right. She hasn't said sorry. And if she can't say sorry and they get right. caught up and it's the same thing right. with couples, in my office where they get caught up on love, right? You know, the marriage is great. They're a good couple. They can have a great life together, but for some reason, one is anxious. They have trouble with love. And so the whole thing's off. Right? And no, I under, I, I can understand it on some right. level, the meaning of a word. Um, anyways. Um, and it, this is fascinating. And I mean, I, I, I just want to just bring it back to the film just for a, a minute here. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that uh, so much of the film can be seen through the the eyes of Ray trying to um, make peace with his dead father. And how many of us, mm. you know, can relate to that idea? I know the film's about baseball and working on your dreams. And of course, that that is the main motif. But I thought another theme that I think I think it's lost sometimes when people talk about this film is you know, Ray chasing ghosts. And one of the ghosts sure. he's chasing is the, the loss of his relationship with his father and his connection to all of these dead baseball players. Well, that's the resolve you of know, the film. You know, what he, says, what he says to his wife when he sees his father on the field. And he says, wow, look at him. This is before he became like the shell of a man. This was, this was when he was still young and had dreams and believed in life and was like open and he's so like, cause he doesn't see his father on the field as the old guy that he was fighting with. He sees his father, like you say, through the eyes of a sister or through the eyes of a brother, like as young, as open, as like having hopes and dreams for life. And that's what he reconnects with, which is so interesting that that's the resolve. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's, a, it's a, in a way that message uh, I've heard in different contexts, in books and, and in film, this idea that it's such a shame. It's such a shame that they were so full of vigor and creativity. And then they just became, you know, there's lines like this in films where, you know, we get old and we get myopic and mean and selfish. This is, this is what I was speaking about before, about um, trying to put on as many facts and research onto the trajectory of one's life or else we have to create a caricature. You see, right. I don't believe Ray's father was this innocent, vivacious, creative young man. And then just poof, right? you know, first of all, one has to ask the question. We've talked about this with the Rain Man. What happens to a parent when you are trying to raise young kids? I, I've, I've experienced this clinically. I've watched this happen. What happens to a parent about their perspective on life, on safety, on love, on on um, on security, when you are in the process of raising your kids and preparing to bury your partner. Now, I've never been through that. I've watched it. I can't, re and even though I've watched it, I can't even say how I'd react. I do know this, right. it's gonna have an impact on you. <laughs> so I can guarantee you that most people, and I would, by most, I mean most, right. that experience 
of doing that mm. will leave in the great biblical idea of Jacob having a permanent limp after wrestling with the angels. Yeah. That will leave you with a limp. It will leave you with a, um, uh, um, like a scabbing, like an yeah. emotional scabbing. Yeah. And you might protect yourself a bit with life. You, you might be harder with your kids. Um, you might, you, you, you might lose a sort of innocence watching yeah that um and you might not want to be too vulnerable and get involved in a relationship again after you've experienced that all i'm saying here is that um ray jumps over that process it's a movie again we always you know you and i talk about this it's a movie it's not right. real life but if but if i was working with ray i'd ask him that question you know you were three when your mother died how much can do you really remember about that time of course the answer was nothing i mean he doesn't know what his father was going through they weren't having deep conversations when he was three right. and based on what he said all his father and him talked about was baseball so the idea that ray ray really understood his father when his father you know when ray was 15 16 right he, like he really is nonsense he, he didn't right. know the man at all like so many of us don't know our parents i mean ellie the, the truth of the matter is you know, and I, I talk about this in my book, so I, I'm going to reveal something that is out there you know, in the public sphere. Uh, until my parents divorced, you know, and I was forced to go on long walks with my father because if I wanted to see my dad. I'd have to go on these long walks with him. Right. It was amazing to me how much I did not know about this man. Mm. Like little tiny stupid things from the stupid to the profound. I knew nothing about this man, mm. you know, and my sense with my father is he knew nothing about his father. And I guarantee you it goes back four or five generations. Right. So, you know, I, I don't know how you get to a, a process of forgiveness for whatever has been done to you until you flesh out the real person, what they went through, what was happening in the family beyond the individual. I just don't understand how you get to a, a forgiveness that... Mm. Does Joseph's forgiveness for his brothers last or does it last a week? And I think, you know, I, I think that if the process that Joseph went through was was one of tests and then an internal sense of sadness for where things are and a real change, one could say that that would be a lasting uh, forgiveness where they won't have to repeat it five, six times throughout a lifetime. Anyways. Yeah, well, Joseph's, Joseph's, you know, he's the end of that um, pattern because his kids are Ephraim and Manasseh, who become the role mm. models, the first brothers to love each other and support each other and um, not get caught up in that dynamic of brothers hating brothers. So he is actually, it, we see the next generation. Why? Because Joseph is able to overcome it. He forgives and lets it go and doesn't carry it anymore. And it shows in his kids, which is super interesting. Well, that's that's beautiful, Ellie. First of all, I mean, I, I always I always get a little bit um, skittish when when secular therapists take the Bible and they they twist it, it, it into something that works for their you know right. Freudian you know. So I, I'm always a little skittish. I'm glad you went there and and I didn't. <laughs> um, uh, I, I just I try to be more I, you know I I try to be more humble when I do that because I, I'm concerned that you know. I could twist the tails into something that supports Bowen theory or something. But what you just said actually is fascinating because, you know, Dr. Bowen, one of his things was you can research families over generations. You can see how families are doing. You can see, are they regressing or are they progressing in terms of emotional maturity? And it's, it's a beautiful what you just said, because you can't see that over three, four generations. Are the siblings across generations becoming more mature in terms of being able to reveal oneself, the true self, 
without disconnecting or fusing over the generations or are they resorting to more distance and cut off and right. all right. the other shenanigans that we get caught up in and you could see yeah. that so it's actually lovely what you just said because that's what i look for in my work when i do a genogram mm -hmm. i am looking to see across generations how different cousins and how are people functioning in this family and you could see it factually it's not you don't got to get too deep you know in terms of you know unconscious thoughts and stuff you could see it factually so that's that's lovely. yeah there's um one of my students is like oh yeah we have to get abram to talk about this whole line of brothers hating brothers and then how it gets resolved it'd be so fun to do a whole thing on it so you're you're invited <laughs> you're up look i mean we could do we could do uh you know uh, we could create a family diagram starting with uh you know cain and oh, abel yeah. the first sibling conflict and then work its way down but the, the motif through. that you just shared is fascinating just yeah. fascinating um yeah, it's beautiful. and uh yeah so okay we're I, what are some of your thoughts on this film? i mean where, where do you want to go with this i actually really i've got a couple more thoughts to share so yeah i mean i i don't know if one of your notes is this but i actually really enjoyed their marriage i i thought their marriage About, like was how so i just thought it was beautiful in terms of they really were able to go with each other even when the you know their whole livelihood was on the line and even when um uh, it, none of it was logical and they were able to hear their daughter even when she said something totally illogical like it just seemed like which was interesting to me in terms of the cutoff like that he was actually able to create something quite lovely but he didn't have a son right so he he marries a, a woman who clearly has similar values to him and they have a daughter. So I wonder if that's part of it, but I just, I was, I thought their relationship was very beautiful, how it was portrayed in that way. Yeah. What I, <clears throat> you know, one of the things about their, their marriage that I think highlights, um, you know, this idea that, you know, uh, all couples start their marriage at different levels of um, emotional maturity. We, we've mm -hmm. talked about this before differentiation of self people at the lower end of differentiation of self are, are have a lot of difficulty transitioning um uh the 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 weather and the flavors of life so uh going from courtship to marriage first child to second child people on the lower end have a very very difficult time and they have a very difficult time if one partner says hey you know what we should do why don't we leave the city and move to a farm that's the kind of thing that will break up a marriage within, you know, two weeks. What was interesting about watching these two, they started off in the 60s. They talked about that, dropping LSD or whatever they were doing. Mm -hmm. And and a, a more anxious or, more, or less mature couple, one maybe would want to stay within the 60s and one would say, you know, maybe it's time to grow up. And the other person would hear that as you don't love me anymore. Right. Or why would you do this to me? Why would you want things What to was change? interesting about watching right. these two exactly exactly if you love me you you know you 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 would keep things the way they are um what's interesting about these two is they don't take things too personally when yeah. they are standing up for self i'll give you an example when she stands up in that book burning talk he's embarrassed you can see he's sitting there going oh my god like just please sit down this is not going to be good right. but what he doesn't do is threaten her he right. doesn't he, he he doesn't do any he 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 does what i would call we talked about this before he he is a neutral but loving observer. Yeah. We've talked about this term before, Ellie. He sort of does as, that in a way. As she is with him throughout this most yes. of the thing until she has her own dream. They both do that with each other. She's a loving, neutral observer, like, okay, well then 
do what you got to do. <laughs> right. It's fascinating. Right. Now, it's a film, and I don't know how I would react if my partner came home and said, hey, let's sell the home. And, and, and before I could see the dream, all I could see is the risk. Because the fact right. is that if when your spouse comes home and says, hey, you know what I think would be a great idea? Let's have another kid. And you're thinking, I don't think it's so great. Right. I'm very glad you think it's so great, but I don't think it's so great. So that that sort of um, that tension that happens in all all committed relationships, it's just bound to happen as one person grows or has a different idea. Um, The the ability to sort of navigate and work within those choppy waters um, sort of shows the the, the degree of, I would say, again, maturity uh, in a couple. And I, I would agree with you. I think you see it in the in these two. As each one has their own challenges and growth, they seem to navigate those those waters very well. Um, and um, yeah, I, I have nothing. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's uh, it's, it's an a good unusual, example of a marriage that unusual, works. Yeah, it's an unusual. Weirdly enough, it's the exception. You don't often see a mature relationship like that modeled in films. So often, I think people don't know what that looks like. You know, so I just I, I just felt it was important to note because we don't see that type of trust, flexibility, playfulness, right? They're very funny with each other. They're very playful and like how, like sort of half taking themselves seriously and half not. Um, I just thought it was a really unique um, relationship. I, I don't see those very much in films or in life for that matter. Yeah, you know, Ellie, have you seen a film on Apple TV? It's an Israeli... Uh... Sorry, say it again. What's the name of it? Ha- ha- Tehran. Oh, I've seen the ad for it, but I haven't watched it. Okay, it's it's. It, I, I I don't. I wouldn't say it's amazing. I think it's a very very good series. Okay. Um, uh, I think it represents. Again, I, I've never been to Iran, so I don't know. You know, and I don't know much about the Mossad except for what I read. But I think it represents Israel and Iran quite well. One of the things is they have. Um, there's the head of the secret service in Iran, who's in his. I would say maybe early 60s who's married Mm. and there's another character in the film who is in his later 60s israeli um who lost his wife and there's a scene where i'm not gonna give anything away here but there's a scene where they're interacting with each other both of those cases i think that the tv show does what you're describing right now um a good example of of representing um uh a marriage over 30 40 50 years um, done well, which you don't always nice. see in film. This yeah. TV show happens to show um, uh, what that could look like. So Beautiful. there you go. There's another. Yeah, look, uh, I just think those are important examples to have out there. I think it's really great for people to see what that could look like. And so, yeah, I wanted to make sure to to point that out. Um, okay, let's the, do one more thing from your notes before we finish. Okay, up. so one more thing. Okay, where do I want to go here? Um, Yeah, okay. So one of the things that um, I wanted to just touch on, because we've talked about this before, is uh, this idea of, we've talked about this before, of togetherness, the the togetherness impulse, the the, the forces that have us wanting to uh, think and feel the same as others. And what happens when you don't, you know, what happens when you have a different idea about um, about uh, vegetarian uh, food when you grow up in a family that is vegetarian? What happens when you have a dream that makes your parents or your spouse anxious? And so there are two s- examples in this film of the consequences of pushing back against the togetherness force. Mm. 
it, it gets highlighted in this film because in insular communities, whatever insular community you're in, political, yeah. religious, economic, you'll have more togetherness. It's just, that's just the way it works. Right, meaning um, everybody so the, seems on the same page. They sort of have group think a little bit. They, exactly, right. and it's not just that they're on the same page. There are actual, there are actual emotional forces for a survival thing we just you know because you and i happen to be in part of the ashkenazi jewish community right um if you actually you know if you if you ever meet a sephardic jew i mean they also have their togetherness stuff but there's something operating differently in the ashkenazi world because of the holocaust and and anytime there's a tragedy in a group it the that natural impulse that bowen talked about the togetherness impulse kicks in and and it's there to help survival the problem is when do you start to move to individuation again? And right. if you ever notice in the Ashkenazi Jewish community, there's a lot of pressure. It's getting less over the years. When I was growing up, if you ever, when I was a teenager, if you ever said anything positive, right, about let's say the Palestinians or like, you know, Syria or anything, people would think that you were just a self-hating Jew and that would be it. Like there was nowhere to go. Seinfeld riffed on that with, with, um, uh, with Schindler's List. I think when right, he was we were kissing, just remember? After he, 67. We were just after Yom Kippur. We were just like literally fresh out of war where people had right. lost it's, people. So it's that, very that's different right. now when, you know, there's for sure still war and terrorist attacks, but not on the level of loss. And and there's more the, the instinctual drive to pull for togetherness. I think what happens over time is that some people realize that the consequences aren't worth it to keep up our fists like this all the time. So people intuitively understand that you need both. That's what always Marie Bowen talked about in marriages and families. Mm -hmm. You need the ability to come together baby to breast and you need the individuation, the baby to learn to eat on its own. Mm -hmm. And this happens in adolescence and marriages. But in this film, when Ray decides to build this baseball diamond and he's supported by his wife, remember the cars on the road? Yeah. They're watching them going, your people are certifiably insane. Yeah, like, taking not pictures, only that sitting there watching this him This is dangerous for our community. Cornfields. Yeah, it's wild. They're just like, whoa. And then, or when he goes into the store to buy supplies and he asks the guy if he's ever heard voices and, and the farmer says to everyone, Ray's hearing voices. And they're all staring at him. Like, that's yeah. right. Yeah, it's so wild. And where we hear this, by the way, we hear this in another film is in, um, oh my God, Ellie, help me out here. The dance one with uh, uh, oh, the Footloose. small town. Footloose, yeah. same thing. The yeah. togetherness force of the town because of a tragedy. When he pushes back on that, you better get ready for pushback uh, when that togetherness force is there. So that's one. And the other one is when, again, Ray, Ray stands up, Ray's wife stands up with the book burning. Again, similar to Footloose similar to Footloose. Yeah. Um, and the crowd, it's all, it's so interesting. It's kind of like when you see those flocks of birds, how yeah. flocks of birds kind of come yeah. together. The crowd just naturally comes together. And there's something instructive, and I'll, I'll end on this thought. When she doesn't back down, and it's something I talk about with my clients, when you take a stand in your family, you have to prepare for the pushback. If you don't, you're done in. Yeah. If you don't prepare for it, you're going to get too overwhelmed with what happens. But if you can anticipate it, you can strategize for it. Now, I don't know That's if she beautiful. strategized for it, but when they pushed back on her and she didn't scream at them, she didn't say you're a no. bunch of Neanderthals. She just stood her ground, kept the focus on herself. <laughs> the crowd started to shift. She screamed at the other woman. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. The, the woman who was initiating the book ban, she directed her anger at her. 
but, but she, she did it at the crowd the family right she, she riled the crowd with similar values and similar principles yeah she, she said aren't we like don't you share this blood whatever the hell she talked about right i think that if she would have stood up and said you're all a bunch of backward hicks blah it would strengthen the togetherness and, and they would have been banished from the community. Yeah. And this is what happens in families. This is the idea, again, of this idea of if you're going to take on your family, right, you're going to lose that one. But if you really want to make progress in your family, you start with one person, not five. You start with one. One is enough work for most people. Anyways, um, right. a good film, I have to say, Ellie. I didn't love the film, and yet at the end of the film, I was a sobbing mess. So, the, so if if that was the purpose of the film, it worked. It was. It worked. It worked. Done. Pill taken. Okay. What What's next? I don't know. Let's do something funny next. I think we've done like some serious can, stuff. All right. You know, what do you, you want, Hannah and her you, sisters? Can we? Well, I mean, it, there's no there's no adolescent there's no adolescent themes there. I mean, if you, I'm fine with skipping it. If you think that it's not. You, you I'm, I'm totally open. I, I'm happy to do it. And then we'll we do and then we'll do a teen film next. So are we committing good? to are we committing to Hannah and her sisters? Let's do it. Hannah and her sisters. I'm starting 2021 on the right foot. <laughs> Everything's different now. <laughs> Excellent. I cannot wait. Ellie, this might have to be a multiple. I don't know if we can all do it in one sitting. <laughs> this is my one of my favorite films. Okay. Have all you right. seen it, by the way? Have you seen it? I have, but not, again, not since I think it was out. So, and well, I'm assuming we have to say something about the Woody, Woody Allen controversy, blah, blah. Like, are we treading on... PC ground if we do this film. Let's investigate. I'm in. Let's do it. Hannah and her sister. I mean, I, look, I, I can almost guarantee you that, you know, that there We're some, you know, there will be some people who will say, um, this is a horrible, horrible thing you're doing. Um, I'm fine with it. The question is, you know, can you withstand that kind of blowback? I'm fine with so. it. I think the film has so many important uh, themes about relationships um, and anxiety that, uh, Anyways, I'm in. Okay, so. I'm in. Just okay. to end, I was just looking because we have our live stream on the Jewish Family Institute and uh, and our dear uh, former um, guest host, Emmanuel Marsh, just commented, if you broadcast, they will come. So he's watching along with us. So it was perfect. Hi, Emmanuel. All right. Excellent. So next week, Hannah and her sisters, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. May 2021 not be like 2020. <laughs> I mean, I mean, okay. All right. See you, Bye -bye. See you next week. Bye.